for letting me do that. I, we haven't done a thing like that in quite a while. I needed to kind of refresh. So go ahead, guys. You can just, you, when you're going. Thank you, Philip. Okay, so we are starting the sermon now. So we good to go back there and clock and hi to everybody who's joining us online. Um, I have a serious question for you. I, I want you to seriously answer. Do you want to grow in your relationship with God? I really, I really got this thing in my heart where I felt like the Lord has been sort of speaking to me lately about what is like Sam. As we've been going through this big transition and I've been trying to go after the Lord, what are you doing and why and how and what are we, how are we supposed to respond and what are we supposed to do? What I've been feeling more and more like what God is saying is, is Lake Sam is a place where you can grow in your relationship with God greatly. That's what we exist for, to grow in our relationship. So I'm going to ask the question again, do you want to really grow in your relationship with God? If you do, pay close attention to what we're just about to talk about. Last week, Kevin finished us up on the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we went through them, and we've been going through the Old Testament to understand how it provides a foundation and a deeper understanding of what the New Testament is all about, okay? So we did the first five books, and it's called the Pentateuch, or in Jewish, it's called the Torah, and what we're talking about here is these five books are set out because they're mosaic. Some people would argue that they're not mosaic in authorship. And I believe that, seriously, I do believe this, that that is an attack from the pit of hell to come against the miracle that these first five books actually are. Now, I could argue that, I could come off of that a little bit, but not much. Because I believe that these first five books are one of the greatest proofs of the existence of God that has ever existed and ever will exist in all the world. These first five books do an extraordinary thing that no human being could ever, ever do because it's prophesying things that are 1,500 and thousands of years in the future. It prophesies things even in its own time period that come true and then more and more over the years and so on. You, no human being could understand the scope of humanity including all of the prophetic elements, all the things that are going to happen, and then cause them to happen. And what God does in the first five books of the Bible, he lays out every theme, every issue, this is the key one, and every solution. Here's, what the, here's who God is, here's who you are, here's what the problem is. And here's my solution, and that includes Jesus, who's not going to show up for 1,500 years, but is all over those first five books, in a way that the people who read them didn't get it. He's in the third verse of the Bible. He's in the third chapter of the Bible, being prophesied about exactly. He's then prophesied throughout Genesis, and in every book of these five books, over and over, when we get to a certain point, he will say, the answer to this is, and then he will talk about something that's coming which later rabbis, even before Jesus began to understand, was the messianic promise from God. So it wasn't just recognized after Jesus. The rabbis begin to say, there is a problem that God has outlined, and there's a solution that he's got coming. That's what happens in these five books. It's phenomenal. So the rest of the Bible, indeed the rest of human history, the Bible is nothing but really a history book with some commentary. The Bible is history. And if you look at the whole of human history, the whole of human history is nothing but the working out of the themes, the issues, and the solutions that are presented in those first five books. All of human history is simply working them out. Extraordinary. Now, here's what it's doing primarily. God is showing us, one, who he is, Two, who we are. Now, that's the one we're really focusing on. Who I should put who we really are. Not who we think we are, not who we hope we are, not who we want to be, but who we actually for real are. And then number three, this is the one that he wants you to grab a hold of today. Once you really start to understand number two, you got to understand number one. <laughs> but once you really start to understand number two, the hope and the hope my heart is, is that by the time we get done today, you will start choosing the surpassingly spectacular life that can be when you're truly with him. This is what this is. Now, let me just take this a little bit further. 
He wants to bring us into something if we'll let him. It's still our choice. I, I give you this day, life and death, make your choice. But that goes on in all sorts of different levels and that's what we're talking about. So now watch this, okay? We've got to go a little bit deeper to get there. So we, who God is, we've been talking about it. Miracles and parting of Red Seas and, and food every night and day and provision, creation itself. Who God is is just all over those first five books, right? But what is also all over those first five books is who we are. And the key to it is from the very beginning, Eve, and then Adam following. From the very beginning, God reveals something critical about us. Listen to this, super important. No matter how much we may want to be with him, the brutal, unfortunate truth is that we are incapable of genuinely being with God. We will always make a choice away from him. Not every time, don't misunderstand, but at some point we will make a decision to go our way, not his, and that separates us. Think about it. God wants us to be in relationship with him the same way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. Is it ever, was there ever a time when Jesus said, you know, I'm not so sure I like that plan, Father. I think I'm gonna adjust it a little bit. It makes more sense to me if, you see it? And yet we do that all the time. We don't even have to do that. We don't even have to, we can just go to this level. We can just say, I don't understand it, so I'm gonna do what I think. I know what God's saying, but I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. This is stupid. So I'm just going to do what seems best to me. Now, that's not that big of a deal, right? And yet it separates us from him. It, it doesn't just separate us from him. It separates us from what he's trying to bring us into, the land, which is not the land at all. It's his presence. It's the life that he has for us. Are we catching it? So watch this. We're incapable of it. This is the word you got to get in your head today. You gotta, I'm not doing this to shame anybody or make anybody feel bad. To the contrary, what I'm trying to do is get us to finally get down our defenses and quit trying to sort of, you know, make, no, I'm not really that bad. No, you got to do turn it around and say, no, I really am what he told me I was and what he proved I was over and over and over by not only what happened in their lives that I could see, but what's happened in my life. Yes, I am the person that continually does these things. I do that. And then once we own that, that's when you're finally starting to get to where God can do something about it. Okay, watch this. We're redefining the issue and the problem. Because here's what we think, see? In America, most people, Western world believes this, that most people are basically good. It is a bit of a sign of the more prosperous cultures that as, as sort of necessities and, and brutalities of places that are in starvation and where people are, are enslaving people and taking advantage of them in so many different ways and so on, it is a symptom of prosperous societies that people start thinking, mankind is basically pretty good. Now, a Christian says immediately in their heart, no, they're not. Everyone's a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm going to talk about that in just one second, but I want you to get off of that, and here's why. The problem really isn't about goodness. See, I did this a couple of weeks ago, and Kevin used it last week. When I redefined sin, I tried to take it from you thinking that you're doing something bad to you just understanding it means anytime you choose to not do what he has. He has something glorious for you, and you choose for whatever reason to go some other right direction. Whenever you do that, that's the separation. That's what sin actually is. That's how God defines it. I had something great for you, and you rejected it. <laughs> right? It was, it's, I, I, the, the best way to always under, remember this is sin is stupidity. It's just stupid. God had a garden, and you had everything, and there was nothing bad in it, and we thought we knew better. <laughs> right? Unbelievable. Goodness is not really the point. God made us to be with us, and that's what we're incapable of, because we keep choosing to go our own way, a different way than what God has. Simple. 
This, by the way, is a definition that'll work with a saved person and unsaved person, because you can go to any unsaved person and say, do you always do what you know to be the right thing to do? And there's nobody that will say yes. A lot of times I do. Do you always do it, though? No, sometimes I just want something, and so I just do it, even though I know it's not the best thing. Well, there you are. <laughs> this is what God means when he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We think all have done bad, so it makes everybody bad, right? Get that out of your head. It is bad, but it's bad for a very different reason than what we think. In fact, I want to rephrase this for you in a way that I think doesn't do violence to the scripture. What it clearly means is all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is who he is in his holiness. We do it our own way. It's not his way. And that is something different than what his, that's what's him. And so that's falling short of his glorious way. Right? So let me rephrase it. Let me just rephrase this a little bit and say it is about not going his way, but let me just rephrase it to something for us today, and that is this. We all fall short of the glory that God has for us. Do you see how that totally turns it for you? All have chosen to go their own way, and so they don't enter into the better thing that God had. Do you see it? Right there. Every time the Israelites were under pressure, remember all the themes are laid out, Every time the Israelites were under pressure and so had to choose between trusting God or turning to something else, something they already knew, what'd they do? They always chose Egypt. And I love Justine's sermon a little bit ago where she said cucumbers. They seem to really like the cucumbers in Egypt. Okay, I can't imagine anybody liking cucumbers for any reason. But <laughs> you probably like kale too. It's on you. Okay. <laughs> All right. And because God had promised them another way, because God had promised them another way, the land and all it really represented, because as Justine pointed out, it wasn't really about the land. It was about coming into what God had for you, a place flowing with milk and honey, a place of abundance, like that garden where he knew what you needed and he created you and it was beautiful and there was no weeds. He's got another place for you that he wants to bring you to. So because he promised them another way, the land and all it represented, their choice to go back to Egypt was a rejection of what he wanted to bring them. Do you see it? It wasn't just a rejection of that, though, was it? It was actually a rejection of him. See it? Now, we can say all this, and we can say, yeah, but, you know, I'm a Christian. But the fact is, is that we do the same thing even as Christians. Now, we're different, markedly different. If you're a Christian, you've been living in the new creation and the Holy Spirit leading and guiding you, you are a remarkably different person than you were before, and your testimony has power in it because of how much God has changed you. So I'm not arguing that God hasn't changed you. What I'm arguing is, if here's where you were, and here's where God wants to take you, we're still operating over here somewhere even though we've changed remarkably. What God is doing is wanting to take us someplace entirely different. And the way to know that for real is to say this, whose image into which, whose image are we to be conformed into? Jesus's. We're supposed to be conformed to Jesus's life, right? So if you're a Christian, answer this question. Do your life, do our lives look like, are like, be like Jesus? Do they? And let me, let me really make it clear what I'm talking about here. I want you to close your eyes. Well, I want you to read it, but then I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to read it slowly. I want you to just think and think about this. Okay, now close your eyes. And I'm going to read it slowly for you. Are we as joyful as Jesus? Are we? I'm not saying we don't have joy, but I'm saying are we as joyful as Jesus was? Are we as content as Jesus was? Are we as peaceful as Jesus was in his own heart and in his life? Are we as loving as Jesus was? Not saying we're not loving, but are we as loving as he was? Are we as trusting as Jesus was, is? Are we? Go ahead and open your eyes. Because here's the one that gets us right here. Or are our lives filled with the cares, stresses, desires, pleasures, wants, everything else of the world? 
You see it? Even if we have been remarkably transformed and brought along the pathway, do you see how much of this old crap is still hanging on to us? Do you see it? That old baggage, that old luggage, that old way, the cottonwood, the flesh, the body, the thing. You see it? Now, if all of this is true, today God wants us to deliver us from slavery and bondage. We are not so different than them. <laughs> We're still working out the same basic themes in those first five books. And we are, despite the fact that for most of us, they're pretty golden handcuffs. We still have the velvet handcuffs, as we call them. They're still handcuffs. And because of that, we're in a slavery and a bondage. And what he wants to bring us into is a life that's flowing with abundance, milk and honey. He wants it flowing with just goodness all the time in everything. By getting us to fully recognize and own, the way we're going to get there is by getting us to recognize and own that we're incapable of truly following God. It's not about 10% or 20% or 50% or 90%. It's understanding that we're incapable of genuinely, fully following God. In fact, and here's the one, because I gotta tell you, this is the one that gets me. When I write these sermons, you guys understand, I'm not writing a sermon for you, right? You just get to listen in, okay? This is the one that just kills me. After all these years and after everything that God has done and how much I really do love him, I'm incapable of truly loving God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. And I prove it almost every day. <laughs> right? Now that was a long intro. This is a great sermon. John Iwasaki is, could not be a more perfect person to do this. I have to say something about, before John, I want to say really great things about John Iwasaki because you're one of my favorite people I've ever met in my life. Okay, I think Amy would second that, okay? But, but I want to say something. You know, we always have people pray for the sermon and then for another church. Well, this week, the Millers sent me a friend of theirs that goes to Crossroads, the people that used to own this building, and then moved out to 90. And every week, they have a church that they pray for. And this week, they were praying for Lake Sam. So I just think it's cool. You know, God's doing this thing amongst his churches. So I just love that. So John, would you please pray for the sermon? And would you lift up another church? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. And uh, we will be glad and rejoice in it. Thank you for... Um, the words you have poured into Kurt in preparation for today's message. He said it was for him, but it is for us as well. And so I just pray, Lord, that you will, he will be able to articulate it Amen. in a way that we can receive it and learn to grow in you, in our relationship to you, um, to not um, go our own way, but to follow and obey you and go the better way that you better Amen. things you have for us. Amen. Uh, we also pray, we lift up Crossroads Bible Church, Lord. It Amen. was a blessing that we got into their old building. And um, we just thank you for that congregation praying for us today. And that we're, as fellow believers, we lift them up, their staff, their, um, their members, everyone who's there today. That, and as their, the, their name of their church says Bible, we just pray that the word be proclaimed with power and authority Amen. at Crossroads Bible Church Amen. this morning, and that um, and we rejoice with them. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. That was beautiful. I didn't even think that he should pray for Crossroads. That's how smart I am. Okay. All right. So, so we're in Joshua now. We're past the first five books, and now we're putting all these themes into practice as they roll out over and over, bigger and bigger all the time. So right now, we're going to do a Bible Project video. You will notice that I did a little bit of editing in there. I'll explain that in a second. The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. 
And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land, and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites, and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the river Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions. So the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people, and so the new generation is circumcised and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither. Which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle, and Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan, which leads to the next section. We find stories about all these conflicts that Israel had with different Canaanite groups, and the first part retells the story of two battles in detail, and that's followed by a series of short stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. So the first two battles are against Jericho and then Ai, and they offer these contrasting portraits of God's faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take a completely passive approach. So they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city to music for six days. And just like Rahab turned to the God of Israel, maybe the people of Jericho would do the same, but they don't. And so on the seventh day, the priests blow the trumpets and the walls come falling down, leading Israel to victory. The point of the story is that God is the one who will deliver his people. Israel simply needs to trust and wait. Now the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone, and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group, and they do just what Rahab did as they turn to follow the God of Israel and they make peace with Israel. This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions, and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle, and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, let's stop for a second, because odds are that these stories and the violence in them, they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder, like, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? So first, why the Canaanites? 
The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. So the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to the book's design. After years of battles, we see an aging Joshua, and he starts dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section is like lists of boundary lines. And let's be honest, it's kind of boring. It's like reading a map that has no pictures. But for the Israelites, these lists were super important. This was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. And so now it was all coming to pass right down to the detail, which leads to the final section. Joshua gives two speeches to the people that are very similar to the final speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy. Joshua reminds them of God's generosity, how he brought them into the land and rescued them from the Canaanites. And so he calls them to turn away from the Canaanite gods and be faithful to the covenant they made. If they do, it will lead to life and blessing in the land. But if they're unfaithful, Israel will call down on itself the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked off the land into exile. And so Joshua leaves Israel with a choice. What is Israel going to do? That's the big question that looms as the story ends, and that's the book of Joshua. One more time. Boy, I don't know how we could do this series without those videos because they just will do so much heavy lifting for us to get us to do what I'm going to get to do now, which is I don't have to worry about the whole book. I'm going to take two stories, which they also featured prominently, and I'm going to go through two stories and show you two things that are critical for what we're talking about today. Now, the first one is this weird person that he meets right as he's coming into the land. This is no mistake. Right as he's coming into the land, the first thing he runs into is... When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, hear the, hear the word, and demanded, are you friend or foe? Are you for me or against me? That's the better translation. Are you for me or against me? Now, the, the video says neither, and that's fine, but it's not really what it says. The answer that, the, that, the, that this angel gives is no. <laughs> are you for me or against me? No. <laughs> See what I mean? It just cut you off. You know what I mean? Your perspective is all wrong. You're looking at it from your standpoint. Are you for me or against me? And he's saying, you got it all wrong. You got to come around and look at it from God's standpoint, because what's really going on is, is I'm a commander of the Lord's army. So the question is not, am I for or against you? It's, are you for or against him? See it? Okay, now Joshua, being who Joshua is, which is phenomenal, Joshua does the right thing. At this, Joshua falls down on his face. <laughs> he does exactly the right thing. He falls down on his face before the Lord, in, before, on the ground in reverence, right? He gets what's happened here. He gets how he was wrong and he looks at it. He says, I am at your command. I do what you say. Joshua said, what do you want your servant to do? How perfect is that answer? Is that it, right? That's it. But let's just take it a little bit deeper because I want you to see something here, okay? Now watch this. There's a, there's a concept in these battles coming into this land, and this is why I edited the video. Because in the video, he tried to make a case for genocide and what God was doing in the land and everything else and that God didn't really mean it. And that's wrong. God meant it. They didn't do it, and it had consequences, but God meant it. Okay, watch. Early on the seventh day, remember for six days they're going around and they're doing the music and they're going around. And on the seventh day, they started at dawn, marched around the city seven times, same way. That was the only day they marched around the city the seven times. At the seventh time, now, now think about it this way, seven days and then seven times. Do you think maybe they had a chance, this tribe inside, 
This is a fortified city at the borderland right across the Jericho and so on. Do you think that they had a chance to say, we give? Do you see this? He's giving them ample opportunity to say, we give. But they don't. And so when there's a trumpet blow and then a shout, uh, shout, the Lord has given you this day, but the city and everything in it are set apart. I'm coming back to it. To the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with her in the house will live because she hid the men we sent. Okay? Now, set apart. This word is harem. Harem. Okay? A, 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 a Saudi Arabian king will have a harem. And what does that mean? Hands off to everybody but me. Right? That's, that's the way the word is used even in today's world. But what it means is it's under a ban. It's dedicated to the Lord and the Lord only. I.e., this is all his. The battle, the people, the animals. What, why do you want to kill the animals? The goods, everything is his. Why is he doing this? Why does he want him to do this? This seems offensive to us in the modern thinking. Genocide. He's cleansing the land from everything that would pollute his people. He's saying they had hundreds, if not longer, to come to some sort of relationship with, the, with God. And here now they're being faced with him directly in his people, and even now they won't relent. And so what he's saying is, I have, my patience has been long, 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 long suffering, and now I am done, and I want to put a people in this land, a clean land, that is not going to fall, hopefully. And what he's saying is, if you pick up the things of these people who were there before, their treasures, their idols, their, their ways, you will be polluted like they were. It will happen slowly, but it will happen. And in fact, the Israelites did not cleanse the land, as God said, and they did exactly that. They became corrupted by the things that were left in the land. So what God is saying is, I don't want anything from that thing to touch you. Here's what he's trying to communicate, okay? It's not that he hates animals. He's trying to say, I don't want you to have anything to do with who they were. Anything. Cleanse. Cut it off. Gone. Mine. See? You see it? So this is what's happening here. And this is what happens throughout all of this. And again, they don't do it. But the point about it is, the commander of the Lord's army replied, oh, by the way, let me just, let me just hit you real quick on this, Haram. You remember in, in I, okay, when they go to the second place, one of the guys, what he did in Jericho was he went, well, these are nice things and, you know, whatever, and I'll just keep them and then I'll bury them and nobody will know and I'll be a little richer than everybody else, right? But he kept something from there. So they go to the next battle and what happens? even though it's a much smaller place, even though it's not fortified like the Jericho was, even though all that kind of stuff, they lose miserably. In the first battle, how many people did they lose? Nobody. In the second battle where they were compromised, they're defeated and lose 36 people. You see it? So what he's saying is you polluted yourself and now you're reaping the pollution. See? That's what's happening. That's what happens in I. Okay? So... The commander, this is to reinforce this point now that we're making. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. Okay? Holy. What does holy mean? Haem. Separated. Mine. Holy. This place, you got to understand something, Joshua. I'm telling you what to do and take it seriously. Get your shoes off, get on your knees, get on your face, understand I'm serious. This is going to kill you in ways that you don't understand. See, a little bit of this is not gonna make any difference. What's the problem, God? Come on. And what he's saying is no, it's the yeast that Jesus talks about. A little bit of yeast gets in there and it leavens the whole lump, okay? That's what's going on here. Now, again, I just wanna say something. You may not like this, but you can't change it. You have to recognize what it is for what it is. God communicating clearly something and then demonstrating that he was right by the fact they didn't do it and it did in fact happen. Led them away from God to the point that he had to erase 
them from the land. He brought them under the same destruction that he brought the people before under because they got to doing the same things. You see it? So this land is holy, and Joshua did as he was told, and that's how we stay holy. We do as we're told. <laughs> we obey. Paul says at one point in time, consider yourself slaves. In fact, you're children. But you know what will really help you live life better? Start thinking of yourselves as slaves. Okay? Because then you'll do what he wants. Because that's what you are. Now, with this in mind, what we've done is, is we've said the way to truly follow is to only care about obeying and nothing else. I, uh, I'm 63 years old. I have been living a passionate relationship with God since I was 19. I can't do the math anymore. You need an abacus or a supercomputer to get what the difference is. But the point is, I have lived a passionate Passion. You guys have known me. Many of you have known me for over half that period of time. I have lived a passionate life with God. I still don't get this. I'm going to circle back to this at the end and explain to you how there's a first love in a marriage, and there's a first love with God, and then there's the deeper, better, richer second love that comes into a marriage. And I'm gonna argue with you to this day, God is still teaching me how to really fall in love with him. How to do that with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. To where I don't care about anything. And the thing that God taught me this week, in addition to a couple other things I'm gonna to get to, is this right here. The only way to truly follow is to care about nothing but obeying. I can't tell you, there's probably four or five things in my life now that the Lord has been coming after me about. Coming after is totally the wrong word. He's doing it so graciously and lovingly, so gently. But he's just revealing to me things about the way that I think and the way that I live and the way that I process and the way that I think and the things that I do. And what he's saying is, you just need to care about one thing. Are you obeying? Period. Remember, some weeks ago I said, this is a couple months ago now, I said, you know what, I think the Lord's trying to do after the sermons that Joe started about loving him and him alone. And then when we got to September, I said, I feel like the Lord keeps wanting me to use the word obey, and I don't want to use it because that's not a good word in our culture, particularly American culture. Obey is not a good word, right? And therein lies the problem, right? So I'm owning obey. I'm owning, I have to get to a place to where the only thing I care about, it's not what I want, it's not what I'd like, it's not how I think it should go, it's not what I really desire. I have to get myself and I'm getting myself to a place to where the only thing I care about is am I obeying, period. Nothing else matters, nothing else is important. See it? Now, that's number one. So number two, now we turn to owning how incapable we really are. Remember, the second, the second thing is they have those two battles, Jericho and I, and then the Gibeonites show up. Now here's where Gibeon is. See it right there? They see there's the Jordan River, which is the dividing line. This is the land he promised them. Some Israelites settled on the other side, but this is the land he promised them. They go across the Jordan, to Jericho, you see it right there, fortified city right on the border. But then look where Gibeon is. Could they, could they be more in the heart of Israel or not? They are right in the heart, right in the middle of Israel. And here's what they do that the other, that the other, Canaanite, the other Canaanite kings get together to do battle with them and they all lose and they're all wiped out and they're gone. Except that Israel didn't fully get rid of them, but they would have been, okay? But here's what the Gibeonites did. They understood that they were in big trouble. If you can win a war by walking around a fortified city that stands on your border, by walking around it, blowing a trumpet and shouting, having the walls fall and kill everybody in the city and not lose one person, if you're the next city on the line, what do you do? Because <laughs> you got one of two choices. You can either go, we're in trouble, or you can say, I can fight this. I can tell you that I can fight this one is really stupid. Okay, so what they do is they're cunning. 
When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on, their, they, on, they on their part acted with cunning. They went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn in men. And see, what they're going to try and do is they're going to try and say, no, 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 we're, we're way far away. See, everything's worn out on us. Nothing new. Okay, it's all worn out. So worn out and torn and mended, worn out patched sandals on their feet, worn out clothes, all their provisions dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Now their first reaction is good because what they say, the men of Israel said, no, we're not gonna do that. You may be in this land that we're supposed to wipe everybody out. So perhaps you live amongst us, and then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said, now watch this. This is phenomenal on their part. We're your servants. Do you want to kill us or do you want us to make your food? Do you want to destroy us or do you want us to, to do your farming for you? We're your servants. Okay? Right here, they've said, we're going to serve you. That's what we're going to do. And indeed, that's what they did. Okay? We're your servants. And Joshua did them. Well, who are you and where do you come from? And they said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. It's way away, you know, way, way, you know. But now watch what they do here. But even way away, we've heard about the name of your Lord God. <laughs> we've heard about God. And by the way, we've heard of you. <laughs> Look, we heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the Jordan and the Jericho and all. We've heard about you. Now watch this. First thing they're doing is we're going to be your slaves. The second thing they do is flatter them. Now, if you're just entering into a country and you're kind of freaked out, you know, giants used to be in the land, still there. What are we going to do? Are we going to win? Everything else. If people from another country all together are coming to you and saying, we've heard about you. And when you get to conquering this whole land and you get really powerful and really strong, you're going to come after us. So we want to make a contract, a covenant, not a contract, a covenant with you right now that you will not attack us when you get to be big and powerful. Doesn't that sort of feed you? If you're running into the land and you're kind of freaked out about how it's going to go and you're going, wow, we're making treaties with people that are like not even in our radar, right? So what do they do? See, we've heard a report about him and all he did and all they did, these everything else. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. Look, it's, it was warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, by the way, the walk between Gibeon and, and where they were in Jericho, not even a day. Okay? So, right? So, but behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they burst. These garments and sandals are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but here's the key part. They didn't ask counsel from the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What would the Lord have said if they had? The first thing what he would have said is they're not from somewhere else. They're from the land. But now there's still another question. What would he have said to do with them? Because it's entirely reasonable to think that God might have said, don't kill them. They're willing to serve. Let them become your servants. It's also entirely possible he would have said the opposite. They're lying to you. They're deceiving you. I want them cleansed. We just don't know. What we do know is... The Israelites didn't ask God. Now, let me just say something to you. If that doesn't preach, you're not getting anything I'm saying. <laughs> In everything you do, you should be asking God. Everything. All the time. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Covenant. We're... we're, we're, we're we're going to another point, so you got to make the transition with me, okay? I need you to understand, here's what we're working on. The big thing that we're working on is that we are incapable of following him. Incapable of it. And we're going to prove it right now through covenants. Covenants are something that happen. There's four major ones that have to do with various things. The most important one, though, is the Abrahamic covenant. That's the one where he, makes a, where he comes to Abraham and he said, because you believed, I consider you as righteous. You believe that there were going to be sons even though you're, you're 87, that you're going to be 100 before you have them. But I'm going to give you kids and I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you all this. And he believes. And then God makes a covenant with a person. 
He makes a covenant. Now, here's the first thing you have to understand about covenant. Remember this. I'm doing it real quick because we've done it a lot. In the old world, there was a covenant and there was a contract. In the new world, our world, there's only a contract. We do not make covenants anymore. Here's why. A contract is you have something, I have something. Together, we're more than we are apart. It's beneficial for us to be together. We're going to make a contract to work together. At some point in time, this contract may not be beneficial to both of us. And so there's conditions in the contract to break the contract. You can break a contract. If it's not serving you anymore, get out of it. You might have to pay a penalty. You likely will have to pay a penalty. But get out of it. You can get out of a contract. The difference between a, covenant, a contract and a covenant, the reason why we don't have covenants anymore is because you cannot get out of a covenant. In fact, what a covenant is, you take an animal and you cut it in half and you lay it out and then you and the person you're making the covenant with walk through the cut pieces of the animal saying, may be done to me what we did to these animals if I break this covenant with you. And what's being said is the only way a covenant ends is death of one of the parties. That's it. Just fast forward, foreshadow. Jesus dies and fulfills the covenant. The only way. See it? Okay. Now, so here it is. Now watch. Now we're going back to, okay, I'm, I'm just trying to show you how much God cares about covenant. So Joshua and the elders make a covenant with the Gibeonites who lied to him, who deceived him, right? So you would think that at some point in time, this is not cool, and you can sort of like fix it. Well, at some point in time, Saul got it in his head to fix it. And we could have to speculate a little bit, but it's not because of the way it's phrased. What seems to be being said is that at some point in Saul's life, remember, we're talking right now, as they enter the land, we're at 14, about 50, Okay, on a thousand, at a thousand BC, they're going to be kings. And the first king is Saul. And Saul starts off really good and then goes bad because he didn't obey. And so he's no longer king, he's out of favor. And either because of that or just because he was trying to be overly zealous, he was doing things that he thought were right. Or he might have been, like I said, I think there's, it's arguable that he was trying to curry favor. He was saying, I'm out of favor now. David's king or has been anointed to be king. He's going to be king. So I'm out of favor. So I'm going to make, you know what I'm going to do to make it up? You remember those Gibeonites that tricked us that God wanted to wipe out? I'm going to take care of that problem. I'm going to wipe them out. Now, it may have been that. It may have been something slightly less. But either way, what's clear is this is what he did. Something like this because, oops. During David's reign, after Saul, there was a famine for three successive years, and David inquired of the Lord, why is this happening? And the Lord said, it's because of the blood shed by Saul and his family when he killed the Gibeonites. Wait a minute. The Gibeonites are who God wanted to cleanse from the land. He wanted to kill them. And now he's killing Israelites because the Israelites killed the Gibeonites. Why? Because they broke the covenant. What's God trying to communicate here? He's a God that keeps covenants and he expects us to, too. You see it? God is a covenant-keeping God. And by the way, nobody would be here today if it weren't for that fact because God made a covenant with us and that's why you're still here because those choices you've been making to separate you would have ended you a long time ago were it not for him keeping his covenant to save you. Got it? So when he killed the Gibeonites, Saul tried to kill them in his zeal, see, for the Israelites and Judah. Now, so David summoned the Gibeonites and he asked, what should I do? How can I make atonement? How can we become one again? We've done something bad to you. What do we have to do to make it up? And there's a thing that happens there. You can look it up yourself, okay? But now, you, now what we've just learned here is we've learned how important covenants are to God. And now we're gonna look at the most important covenant that God ever makes, in my opinion. You could say Noah's a pretty important one. That's where he decides not to destroy the world again by flood. But you know, it's gonna go in fire later, so that doesn't seem as big to me as the one where he says, I want to be in relationship with you and I'm gonna make a covenant 
to be in relationship with you. That feels to me like the most important covenant. Now watch what happens during this covenant. Remember the theme we're on? You're incapable of upholding your side of it. God told Abram, Genesis 15 now, Abrahamic covenant, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them, and he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves out side by side. And then he chases birds away and so on. But here's the key verse. One of the most key verses, one of the most important verses in all of scripture. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Wait a minute, he's supposed to walk through the covenant. God's making a covenant with him. He's got to walk through the covenant, doesn't he? With God, right? That's what's supposed to happen. He falls into a deep sleep. Not only that, but it's a terrifying darkness that comes over him. What's that trying to communicate? This is serious. Pay attention. <laughs> Learn. This isn't nothing. This is the death of my own son that's happening right now. This is in Genesis chapter 15. You think God didn't know what he was doing from the very beginning? What a proof of God's existence that right here in the very beginning what he's saying is after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Two parts of God going between the two halves of the carcasses. You know what God's doing? He's making a covenant with himself. Think about who Jesus is. Two things. Number one, by the way, becoming one with atonement, atonement, the atonement we call it when Jesus is on the cross. Here's the first part of it. Jesus is 100% man. A man finally fulfilled the covenant. 100%. And then what he did was he took upon himself all the consequences that were due you and I all the decisions that we made to separate ourselves, he allowed to come on himself. And so a man died for mankind's sins. You see it? This is an extraordinary moment. God is saying, I'm making a... There was, there was two people going through there. I don't know if it was the Father or the Spirit, but the point is, one of them was Jesus. One of those is Jesus. But here's the second thing that's just unbelievable. Who is Jesus? He's 100% man, but he's also what? 100% God. And so what's God actually doing? God is the one that we offended. God's the one that we made the decision to separate from. And what God is doing on the cross is he's saying, put it on me. I'll take it by becoming a man, but I'm taking it. Who's fulfilling the covenant? God. Can we? We're incapable. And he knew that. From the very beginning, he knew that. All he wanted us to do was to know that. But he, but he knew it. He just needed us to know it. So he did all this so that we would know it. God knows that we are incapable of keeping our part, so he fulfills it for us. I, uh, Deuteronomy says it at the very end, right? I lay before you life and death. Choose life. I know you're not going to. Those who hear the warnings of this curse should not think I am safe even though I'm following the desires of my own stubborn heart. If you are going your own way, don't think it's gonna go well. But I wanna say it the way that we're talking about it today. Don't think you're gonna enter into what God promises. It cracks me up that all the time people are choosing to go their own way, they're making their own choices, and then they're blaming God about how life isn't working out for them. Now, that would be really funny if it weren't so tragically sad because I'm right there in the chorus on that. I don't like how my life is working out, but I'm still gonna try and fix it. I'm still gonna try and do what I think I should be done on it. 
And then I can't figure out why it doesn't work out the way he wants it to. Because <laughs> I'm not even giving him a chance. <laughs> oh, Lord. The Lord God. Here's what he's saying right here in Deuteronomy. He's got to do something. I'm telling you, it's not just Jesus. It's not just, it's even the new heart, the new creation that has to happen. It's right there in the first five books. It's right here at the end of the first five books. He's saying, you're not going to make it. And so I'm going to do something. I am going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love. Now you'll be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And I want to put it this way. I'm not just talking about live as in get saved and be able to go to heaven. I'm talking about living abundantly now. This is what he's saying. If you want to have an abundant life now, if you want to have the fullness of what he wants, if you want to be in the land flowing with milk and honey, obey follow. By the way, you want to know how to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Just start obeying him. <laughs> you'll start seeing the stuff that he's doing and you'll go, well, this really works. <laughs> this is good. And then you just do it more, and then you fall more in love as you enter in more to who he is, which makes you fall more in love. And it just keeps going around and around and around as you spiral up into the Lord. We are incapable of fulfilling our part, so he fulfills it for us, and this is not just for salvation, him taking upon himself our sins. It is him making us a new creation by his spirit who then dwells in us, helping, guiding leading. How then can we live like, how then can we be like Jesus? Here's how, right here. Own that we are incapable. Own that you're incapable of doing it. Until you own that you're incapable of doing it, what will you keep doing? Try to do it. <laughs> and as long as you're trying to do it, what will you do? You'll be doing things your way. <laughs> he has a way. He's made it abundantly clear in the first five books and then throughout and magnificently in Jesus. His way is him. Him doing what you can't. Now, this is all still pretty abstract. This is not, you know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, I got it. I get the theory of it, but I don't know how to live it. So here we come to number two. Ask him to help us actually do what he said we could. If you can't do it and he can, what should you do? What's the only thing you can do? Help. <laughs> God, do it in me. Do whatever you gotta do. I can't. This is why it's so great to own it. This is why it's not shaming or condemning or negative. It's I can't, you can, so please do. You're using your free will to simply say, come and do what only you can do. Right? So let's go to what did he say you could do? He said here in the most important two chapters in all the Bible, Romans 7 and 8, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's will. Indeed, it cannot. What have we been saying? To any degree that you're living your life in the flesh, you cannot please God. You're incapable of it. You can't get there from there. You can't get there from here, see? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, and then it goes on to say, and if you have been saved, you have the spirit of God in you, because the spirit came and made you a new creature and then took up dwelling in you. And so we need to just get really practical about this. This is Jesus showing us how to live obediently. The moment in all of creation that brings this home, this is the most important moment in creation. It's when Jesus is in the garden. And he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see what he's saying? I have a thought. <laughs> I have something I'd like to see happen instead of what you seem to want to have. And I don't want what I want. I want what you have, period. And here's how strongly he does. Now you're gonna think, well, then this is doing it in the flesh. It's not, watch. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. You see what he was doing? He was saying, I don't want what I want. I don't want this other thing. I want what God wants, even though it means separation from God, even though it means me taking all this upon me. It wasn't about the cross. He wasn't worried about that. He was looking forward to having crowns crushed on his head and spiked into a cross. That way he wasn't looking forward to that, but that's not what he's in agony about. What he's in agony about is that moment when he hangs on the cross and says, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? That is the moment where he becomes sin for you and I. And he doesn't want that moment having been eternally with God. He does not want that moment. Do you see it? But he says, not my will, yours be done. And he is going to make sure that it gets done. And so he prays and he prays and he prays and he prays and he prays until his sweat becomes like drops of blood because he is saying, I am going to do God's will. Does this show you the nature of the battle? This is a real thing. Now, again, you could take from this and say, oh, that's what I gotta do then. I just gotta pray 24 seven until I keep sweating like blood. That is not what he's saying. It's not by works. You can't finish in the flesh what was begun in the spirit. It's just saying that when you're in the battle, know you're in the battle, know that you're incapable and go to the Lord and say, help me, help me, help me. By the way, this is mirrored by somebody who's not saved yet, but the story is nonetheless for us to learn from in the same way we do with Jesus and that's Peter who in a couple hours before Jesus is in the garden praying this, Jesus says to him, everybody's gonna desert me tonight. What's Peter say? Not me. Though they all fall away because of you, he's so willing to throw his friends under the bus. <laughs> Moses was exactly the opposite. Moses says, don't throw them under the bus because I'm the same as them. But Peter's not Moses. And Peter's like, oh, they don't get it, but I do. <laughs> I can do this, right? And God put him there precisely so that we could see that there is that person that really thinks they can do it and prove to you that no, by the time the rooster crows tonight, you're gonna have denied me three times. But then he does something else with him. He takes him up to the prayer place with him and he goes off to pray and he comes back and Peter's sleeping. And what he says is he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. It was three of them. And he said to Peter, look at this. He didn't say to everyone, he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watching, pray so that you will not give in to temptation. To do what? To deny me in a couple of hours. <laughs> For the spirit is willing, but the body, the flesh is weak. Yeah? Sound about right? You really want it. The Israelites, the next generation, the first generation had passed away. They'd seen all the horribles. And they said, we will never leave you. We will remember your miracles. We'll never leave you. And then they left him before they even got into the land. <laughs> this is who we are. It's not a joke, but I mean to say it in a way that isn't condemning, but is rather freeing. If we continually ask the Lord Ask God to lead us into how to put our minds on the things of the Spirit and the Spirit only. We will increasingly look like and be like Jesus. Do you see it? This is the same, this is, the, this is a synonym for what I said when I said what the Lord's teaching me is care only about being obedient. Don't care about anything else, care about being obedient. And that what I'm saying is what I'm, the other thought that I'm having in my mind at the same time, the synonym is I'm putting my mind on the things of the spirit, not the world. So ask him to go through and to cut pieces to get you there. I said I was gonna finish up something and I am and I'm done. I've described many times what a marriage is. I'm not gonna go through it again today, but the first part of love is what? The first part of love is right? The first part of love is you don't know where the one stops. and the other. You're firing on all the love languages. You are in love and you are doing everything. And it is so easy to be nothing but about that other person, right? All your friends are saying, why don't you ever see us anymore? Because you don't care about them anymore. You care about this person you're in love with, right? The first part of love is easy. Lovingly. It's also superficial despite how deep it feels. The world has taken to doing something interesting. Watch this. 
all over media now in television shows and entertainment. What you'll see all the time is I'll talk more and more about open marriages. Because once the first love goes, they don't know about the second one. And so they're saying, just have an open marriage and then you can just keep having that first love thing. What a deception, what a lie. What a horrible thing. And the reason why it's horrible is not because you'll go cheating on your spouse and it'll be wreck and, wreck and do all the things that it does. The reason why it's horrible is because God had something so much better. And the so much better was the second kind of love. And the second kind of love has everything to do with finding out how much you don't want <laughs> the things that that other is. It's finding out all about that you got this tremendous will. You have all of these desires they have all of these wants, that you have all this other stuff going on in you. This is what's going on in you. But the second love is, is when you start realizing that all of that is fool's gold. It's not true, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't scratch the itch to where it never itches again. It just excites it and violences it. The second kind of love is when you stop being so oriented to yourself that you can finally start seeing the answer to prayer that that other person is. And when you start seeing who they are, you start realizing that God knew your flaws and your pains and your desires at a much deeper level, and he brought you somebody who could answer them in ways that were beyond what you could ever have conceived of. <laughs> and that is when you fall in love with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Do you see it? And God says that's a type for a relationship with him. We have to come to the place to where we realize what terrible Christians we really are. I mean it. As long as we're trying to defend ourselves and putting up a facade and trying to make it look good, like God can't see through that, <laughs> right? We have to come to the place to where we go. As much as I want to love you with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my strength, with all my soul, as much as I want to love you that way, as much as I want this. So I need help. I need you to come and help me. I need you to come. Do what only you can do, but I cannot do. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you. Praise you. God, I think all of us love, him, love you more right now than we did a little while ago, myself included. But God, I know that that's just a taste to the fullness that you really want to bring me into. And so I'm asking you, I'm begging you, we're coming before you and we're saying, God, please, in Jesus' holy and precious name, Bring me home. Bring me to you. Bring me to your promised land. Bring me to a life flowing with milk and honey. A life flowing with what you know to be best for me. I walk away from everything that is of me. That I might walk into everything that you have for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Take these cups that are in front of you. 